0: All right, so we are continuing in our summer reading list today, and we're jumping into a new study in Haggai. And uh, you might say, Haggai, hey why? It's one of those books that uh, we tend to overlook. You know, it's, it's a minor prophet, and it's a really minor of the minor prophets in terms of length. It's only two chapters long. Uh, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. And uh, there's just not a lot said about this little book. And that's really too bad, because as I hope you'll see, there are some serious treasure chests in this little book. There are some serious um, examples of spiritual nourishment and meat that uh, I know, I know, will encourage you, will bless you, will be used of God to grow you. Uh, that's certainly my prayer for all of us as we jump in with Haggai. But because it is it is a little bit less known than some of these other um, books in the Old Testament, even in the category of prophets, I want to just make sure to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background. Uh, what's going on is uh, Judah has been taken captive. They were they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon just as prophesied as part of judgment for their failure to turn back to God with their whole hearts. And so they were in Babylon and all of a sudden one night uh, Persia invades Babylon and they overthrow them and a new king is in place, a new ruler, and his name is Cyrus. And along the way, he decides he's going to be really good to all of the the different people captured throughout the different kingdoms. And he says, if you want to go back to your own land, you can do it. I'm I'm going to let you do it. And not only am I going to let you go, I'm going to give you provision. I'm going to give you material and resources that you need to build up your land that was destroyed by the former empire, by Babylon. So anybody that wants to go, you can. And here's the only catch, he says. As you go into your lands, the first thing I want you to do is build up your temple. I want you to build up your place of worship. Now, this was not just for Judah. This was for anybody from the surrounding lands that he did this with. But, obviously, with the book of Haggai, our focus and the context is all about God's people. So, so he, he says to the people of Judah, like he did to the others, go back to your land on one condition build up your temple, go there, worship your God, and as you're worshiping your God, pray for me. It's incredible that, that any any uh, you know, heathen pagan king would do that, but he did. He said, I want you to pray to your God on my behalf, ask that he will bless me and my family and my kingdom. You do that and we're good. So he, he gives that decree. About 50,000 people uh, from Judah went back. And uh, that may sound like a lot at first, but honestly it really wasn't because there were hundreds of thousands that had been taken captive. And uh, they, the majority, were content just to stay in Persia, to stay in that whole area because they had they had made businesses for themselves and homes for themselves. They weren't slaves. Uh, they actually were part of that society and they got really comfortable with it. And they said, you know what? We haven't even seen Jerusalem. Most of the people were born and living just there, in that area, in that part of the world, they had not ever been part of Jerusalem and of Israel. And they just, it was a foreign land to them, for most of them. Nevertheless, those 50,000, they went out, they set out from the area of Babylon. It's really kind of interesting because they actually left the same area that Abraham had originally left, from the Ur of the Chaldeans, and went back the same route that he would have gone when he left everything that he knew behind. And we've got to give those people a little bit of credit because, again, they were they were used to their life in that area. What they knew was all that they had experienced under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and now Cyrus. Now and yet those 50,000 still left their homes, their families, their way of life, and they went back to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the area, to rebuild society, the culture of Israel. And so uh, Zerubbabel was the governor that he was appointed, and he was the last in the line of David. He was the last part of the Davidic line of that day. And so he went back, and uh, the priest Joshua, they went back to to really develop uh, the center of worship to get the nation of Israel really established again, back in the, the worship and in the sacrifices, and to turn their hearts toward God. You can read all about this in Ezra, that's where a lot of these accounts are taken, uh, are recorded. And they, they start off really good. They get there, they get to Jerusalem, they immediately build an altar to God, thanking Him for all that He's done, for, for protecting them and guiding them back. And they're, they're starting off right, you know? Their mind and their heart, it's centered where it needs to be. Giving thanks to God, giving worship to God. So they build an altar, and then they start actually constructing the foundation for rebuilding the temple that was destroyed. And it's all going great. This is within two years of being back. But then, everything comes to a screeching halt. Comes to a standstill. Uh, the optimism faded. The passion that they had. Let's do this thing. Let's do this work. Let's, let's build this temple again for God. Let's Let's reunite our hearts together toward Him. All that passion started waning. It started fading. And that was due to uh, opposition from the locals, particularly the Samaritan people that, that oppressed them and discouraged them. It was due to poor conditions, nothing was able to grow, and it was also due to their funding and their provisions running out. Because Cyrus was gone at this point, and a new king, Darius, came into power, And he says, you know, all this money that's being funneled out of the kingdom to go support these other people, these exiles who now are returning to their land, who are not really even contributing to this empire, why are we doing this? So he stopped. He made budget cuts. And he stopped the funding that was going out. He stopped the supplies of of cedar for the temple. And he he, uh, stopped the supplies of all the resources. So their funds dried up. And discouragement set in. And they became defeated, Um, not just physically, but spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And so the work that had been started and that God made possible for them to, to do, I mean, think about it. He lays it on the heart of a king that doesn't even know him to allow his people to return to their land, to the promised land, to build up a temple for him all with the blessing and favor of a secular king. I mean, if that's not God, obviously, at work, I don't know what is. But despite all that, the work just stopped. And nothing was done for about 15 years. The temple just lay in ruin, and nobody was doing anything about it. And it's in that context that Haggai shows up, and he gives his message. And his his ministry as prophet only lasted for about three months. That's all it took. And, and he gave about four, maybe five messages to the people. And then he was done. That was the extent of his prophetic ministry. And despite that, and despite how brief all of that was, there was so much that was relevant to the people of Israel that Haggai had to say. God used him so mightily to convict and to challenge and to encourage and to bring the whole group of people there together again, to unite them, and not just to unite them with each other, but to unite them toward their God. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And just as it was relevant to them, I guarantee it's relevant for us. So with all that in mind, let's jump into Haggai together. First chapter, Haggai 1. Now you have that backstory. Here's what Haggai's prophetic messages and ministry started like. Haggai 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now remember, they had already started that work. They had already begun that. They had decided, you know what, the time has come. And they they went into that work and they were passionate about it. And this, this kind of sounds at first glance like one of those spiritual things that we often say, you know, those things that might be true, but we, we throw them around too easily, uh, or sometimes too much, like, oh, well, it, it's just not God's timing. The door must not really be open for us to do this now. I mean, I mean, after all, look, look at what's happening. I mean, we had funds that were coming in. Now we don't. Uh, none of the crops are growing. Our, our enemies around us are just constantly oppressing us. I mean, circumstances are bad. And if God were really in this, if God really wanted us to do this thing now, those circumstances wouldn't be what they are. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that just like us? Don't, don't we say that kind of thing a lot of time, if we're honest? You know, we look at a situation, we know we're called to do it, God has laid open the path, He's opened the door to us to do whatever it may be, you know, uh, maybe it's jump into a new ministry, maybe it's, you know, start a new ministry, maybe it's give more of your resources to a ministry, maybe it's uh, to go out and, and actually boldly proclaim the gospel to the people that you know you're supposed to, you've been praying for, but you've never opened your mouth to them, you know, we can fill in the blank. God, if you're His child, if, if you're His through Christ and you have His Holy Spirit, He's going to speak to you, you know, as a believer. And He's going to say, I want you to do this, I, I want you to do that. Here's my will for you. He does that. And we can recognize it. And a lot of the time, we do what they did. We, we say, oh yes God, I'm ready, let's do this thing. And we jump into whatever it is that's before us with passion and with, with zeal and with determination and commitment, but it doesn't take long for us to get a little tired at the setbacks that inevitably come. It doesn't take long to allow discouragement to come in when things don't go exactly as we thought or, or hoped they would as we step out into whatever that is that God has led us to do. And and we're really good as Christians at coming up with all these really wonderfully spiritually sounding excuses for why we no longer are doing the thing we know we were called to do. Things like this. Uh, it, it just must not be the right time. I, I guess we were wrong, we were mistaken. The time really hasn't come, ah silly us, to rebuild the Lord's temple. Even though it was clear that he moved in the heart of our of our captor and and God just overwhelmingly gave us favor in his sight, Uh, I guess, I guess that was it. It was limited to that. He just wanted us to get back here. and, And you know what? Maybe, just maybe, he wants us to focus on building up our own lives first. Yeah, that's it. He, he brought us here and that was definitely of him. That was his will and that was his timing. But before we tackle the work of rebuilding the temple, I mean, hey, we've gotta, we have to live, right? So we need to really focus on building up our own homes and our own way of life. We need to get settled. We need to get established before we take on a task like that. And again, it, it was just so easily justified and rationalized. And sometimes it is true that we can misjudge God's timing. I'm not saying that that's never possible. Um, sometimes we can rush ahead of God's timing and God's plan and God's ultimate will. We can do that. I mean, that's... That's viable. And sometimes it is wise to stop and to take a step back and say, did God really open this door or is this something we kicked open ourselves? Is this God's perfect timing or have have I, have I forced it? Have I rushed it? Sometimes that's a good thing to say. And sometimes the answer will be, yes, you have. And no, this isn't my timing. But that's not what's taking place here. Okay. We need to, we need to understand that. What happened is the people had lost their passion for God and for His work, and they had allowed laziness to come in in its place. What the people allowed to happen was zeal and determination for God's work and to be used of Him to do the specific work of rebuilding the temple and with it their center of worship And their focus on their God, they allowed that to to be traded for apathy and for self-focus. They allowed their difficult circumstances and and their disappointment to overshadow their dedication. And what we need to understand as as we realize that and think about that, and what they ended up agreeing with is the fact that discouragement and disappointment never justify disobedience. Discouragement and disappointment never justify disobedience. And our circumstances should never trump our commitment to God. Our circumstances should never trump our commitment to God. Discouragement and disappointment that will come in and out of our lives, that we'll be faced with, it will never be able to justify disobedience or lack of response to what God has called us to. And as we find ourselves in circumstances throughout our lives, throughout our our walk and our journey as as Christians, as the church, should never be allowed to, to trump or supersede or overpower our commitment to God, and to what we know He's called us to. Uh, That's what these people were doing. And we know that that's true because of what happens in the next verse. Look at verse 3 with me. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Oh, ouch! So God, you know... God does what he, he so often does throughout His Word. He kind of meets them, meets the people where they're at. He, he hears what they're saying, and He kind of sarcastically responds. God does it throughout his word, and, and I love it. Uh, he does that with Job, you know, and he kind of plays on on their reasoning. And so God says, all right, these people, I know that's what they're saying, that the time just hasn't come to rebuild the house of the Lord. He must not really be in it. We, we've rushed ahead. Let's just stop and and kind of just focus on something else. And God says, oh, okay, so, um, all right, so it's not time it's not the right time for you to be about rebuilding my temple and so that you actually have a, a central place of worshiping me collectively as my people. Uh, that's not a priority for you. That's not time for you to do, but it is a priority for you. And you do have all the time in the world to build up your own houses. Is that right? That's, that's what God's saying here. You know, uh, he says you're you're living in your paneled houses. That's wood, and part of uh, apparently part of the uh, the uh, the rub. The problem with the people of Israel not working on the temple was we just don't have enough resources anymore. We don't have enough cedar. We don't have enough wood. We don't have enough building material to build up the the temple like we had when we started. Again, you can find that in Ezra, and yet. They found plenty of wood for paneling for their houses to, you know, make those look nice and good and sturdy and strong. Uh oh! God caught him. God caught him in their very feeble excuse, and he and as a result of that, he says this uh, in verse five. Now the Lord of Armies says this: Think carefully about your ways. Another way of saying that is consider your ways. And maybe your copy of God's word has it that way. Consider your ways or think about your ways. What that literally means, that, that Hebrew phrase, that figure of speech, that literally means put your heart on your road. In other words, think about the direction that you're going. Think about where your life is headed. Put your heart there and ask yourself, is it right? Where my heart lies, the direction of life I'm headed, what, my, what I'm pursuing, what I'm focusing on, what is a priority for me? Is that really the right direction to go? Is that the road I want to keep going down? Or should I stop and go a different direction? That's what God was calling him to do. And then he helps him out. He says, consider your ways, put your heart on your road, see if this is really where you want to go, and let me help you in that process. Let me help you as you're questioning that and evaluating that. Verse 6. Here's their ways. Here's the ways in which they were operating. Here's what was true of them. This was the result of their misplaced priorities. Uh, One of the earlier slides that you saw as we began is the title of our study in Haggai for the next three weeks. It's it's all about priorities. Because that's the theme of Haggai. That's what sums up all of his, his challenge and his messages. It's all about priorities. And the people of Israel had reversed their priorities. Their priorities got out of whack and out of sync. Just like it's so easy and so frequent for us to do. And here's... What was true of them? Verse 6, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. So, in other words, you, you do all these things in your life. You're, you're trying to build up your own life and your own way of life. And, and you're, you're pouring so much attention and energy into all these things. You're planning much, but you don't have anything to show for it. You don't have a good return. You, you, you never have enough to be satisfied or fulfilled. You never really are happy. You try to, to satisfy your own longing and your own desire and you try to give yourself what you need and you work really hard to earn money and to build up all these things for yourself, but it never lasts, it never works, it's never enough, it's never satisfying. There's always something missing, always something lacking. And my friends, that is always how it is when we put anything or anyone in front of God. When we allow our priorities to go from focusing 100% on God, on His glory, when we go from being about His work as our top priority, when we put anything or anyone in place of Him, then that will be true of us as well. That no matter what we put our attention to, it just won't fulfill. No matter what we pursue, it won't hold us up. It's a ship that won't hold any water. What was true for them will always be true for us whenever we, like them, reverse our priority, when we don't seek God first and foremost, when we don't give our, our highest passion to what he is passionate about. What we need to remember is what Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, which the people definitely would agree with later. They would say, yeah, that's absolutely true. We We didn't do this, and that's why we were in the mess we were in. And as soon as we started doing this, that's when we truly saw things turning around. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said this, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Let that be your your first and primary pursuit. Let that be your first and primary passion. And all these things, all these other things that you do need in life, It's not bad to live in a house, and it's not bad to live in a nice house. That's that's okay. It's not bad to, to try to take care of yourself and provide. It's not bad to invest. All those things that we do throughout life are fine in and of themselves. But when we allow them to become our top priority, or our most passionate pursuit, that's when things go badly, every time. But seek first The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be provided for you. That's what God is calling his people here back to to realizing and to remembering. And that's what he's calling us to do as well. Verse 7. The Lord of armies says this. He repeats the same phrase. Think carefully about your ways. Consider your ways. Keep your heart on your road. Verse 8. Go up into the hills. Bring down lumber. See, there was lumber for the taking. There's another way that their excuse just got shot up. Holes all through their reasoning. Holes all through their logic. We don't have enough material. God says, really? Okay, go up in the hills. There's plenty there. Chop some trees down. Bring it down. Go into the hills. Bring down lumber and build the house. Build my house, he's saying. Build the temple. And I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. See, what God is after here with his people and what he is after with us, his people, is obedience. That's what he's after. God is calling his people to be people of obedience. It was never about the temple itself. It was never about a structure. God's not so concerned about temples And about structures and and physical buildings as he is the people's heart. And the the people's building of the temple was a direct gauge or barometer of their overall spiritual condition. And their lack of interest in building the temple showed that it was actually a lack of interest in the things of God. their, Their passion was totally misplaced. It was a gauge for their heart. And it showed that their heart was far from God. And so he was saying, come back to this work that I've called you to. Because as you build the temple, as you come together and build the temple up uh, for worship of me, you're also going to be building your hearts up. You're going to be restoring your hearts to me. I'm going to become first place again. And I'm going to be glorified by what you do. And the other thing with that, what he was really saying to his people is, when I am glorified in and through your life, you will always be satisfied. Because when God is on display, as He should be, when God is gaining glory through our lives, when when we are pursuing His glory, when we're trying to exalt Him, not ourselves, not our agenda, when He is our primary passion, we are the most satisfied. We will always be. We'll always be the most fulfilled. We'll always have true happiness, true joy, true peace when we're pursuing his glory and his agenda over our own. And that's what he was inviting them to and reminding them about. See, in, in obedience, God is glorified. And as we obey and glorify God, then we are at rest and we will be truly fulfilled. It's not about the physical structure. It's not about building a nice building. It's about the heart that's behind it. And that's what God is after. And we also need to be aware of the results of disobedience and apathy. Because God lets them know that. Here's why obeying me is so important. Here's why getting your passion back for building this, this house, my house, for pursuing me together, this why, here's why it's so important that you obey me in this, because the results of disobedience and the results of apathy are, are just too severe. Here's what he says, in, starting in verse 9. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house... I ruined it. What? You ruined it? You mean you brought about bad circumstance instead of blessing? You mean you you actually will do that, God? Well, it kind of this right here flies in the face of the prosperity message. I can't even bring myself to call it prosperity gospel because those two words just don't belong together. But you know the whole prosperity agenda we we spent. Uh, a series talking about that kind of thing, right? Uh, this flies in the face of that. God will always only bless you. God will only pour out to you your every heart's desire. That's what that message says, right? But God here says, you who are my people, um, you you thought you were going to get all this this harvest from all your work. You were focusing on building up your house and your land, and you were trying to build up your economy, and you were trying to just to to really establish yourself while you neglected my work. I'm not going to bless that. God says, I ruined the harvest you brought to your house. You expected much; it didn't happen. And and here he he anticipates you know there. Their question: Well, why? Why would you do that to us, God? You're supposed to be a good God. You're, you're, why would you not bless us? Why did you do that? And he he answers preemptively. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. Ooh. <laughs> You want to know why I'm not blessing you? You want to know why my favor isn't resting on the work of your hands, what you're trying to build up? You want to know? Okay, I'll tell you. It's because you've, you've totally neglected me. You've put yourself and your agenda and your needs and your wants ahead of me and what I've commissioned you to do. I brought you back to rebuild the temple to establish the spiritual foundation of your lives first before you established any other foundation, and you, you did it the other way around. And now I have to get your attention. I'm going to get your attention through your pocketbook. I'm going to get your attention through the grocery store, through the lack of provision there. Verse 10, so on your account, God says to his people, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and on all that your hands produce. Wow. Now, I am not up here saying that every time you go through a hardship or uh, a rough patch or less than ideal circumstances, you know, difficulty, I'm not trying to suggest that this text here proves that it's always God doing that. That's not my point. okay? And that wasn't, that wasn't true of, of God. That's not what he was trying to say. Sometimes it's just being part of a cursed world. We live under the curse from the, the fall of man, from Adam and Eve. Sometimes it's just going to be that, and we can, we can successfully chalk it up just to the fact that we're in a cursed existence. Sometimes it's true that we, uh, because we have a very real enemy, and he, he throws discouragement, and he throws difficulty, and he throws obstacles our way. Think of Job, right? So sometimes those are reasons. But, church, let's not be naive to imagine that our good, good Father, in His perfect sovereignty and perfect goodness and perfect wisdom, knowing what will absolutely get our attention and turn us back to Him, that He will not also send hardship our way to get us to wake up. Let's not be naive to that fact. Sometimes God's goodness for us means giving us what we see as very bad. Sometimes God's blessing on our lives is actually not... What we would define as a blessing, but rather difficulty. Because he knows what is best. He knows what we truly need. He knows what it's going to take to turn us around toward him because we've gotten distracted. And he knows what it's going to take to smash some idols that we've built up. And he knows that because only when we get rid of our idols. And focus on him alone as the one true God. Only when we give him our all, are we going to be truly at rest? And are we going to truly experience what is best? It's only time that happens. So, after this an incredible series of statements from God, you want to know why you're not blessed? Well, look no further than me. And the reason for that is because of your own actions, what you've decided is important. Thankfully, it doesn't end there this opening chapter. I mean that would be a very depressing book indeed if it ended right there. And in one of the most dramatic examples of people turning back to God as a result of his message to them by his prophet, in one of the few cases where the people actually heard and accepted the message and actually did something about it, we see that's what's taking place here in the next few verses. It's wonderful. I love uh, verse, verse 12 and 13. I, I just, I love what happens here and I wish that it was true of, of all the other prophetic messages and unfortunately this is definitely the minority and oh, how I wish it was true of all of us that we all responded as quickly and as definitively as these people do. Look at what happens. Verse 12, the people's response. Okay, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shethiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people. So it started with their leaders, and, but it, it wasn't limited to their leaders. Their people were in this too. The entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him, so the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. Here's what God said. He, he had pronounced you know, some judgment here. He, he called them out on their hypocrisy. But he doesn't leave his message there. Here's what God says as a result of the people responding to that first message. Here's what God now responds to them with because they responded to him. The Lord's messenger delivered the Lord's message to the people. I... I am with you. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 14, The Lord roused the spirit. He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is a total turnaround in just 23 days. Isn't that marvelous? Total revival in 23 days. And... I love the part of verse 13. It's very simple as you read it, but it's so profound where he says, where God says to the people as they respond, as they turn back to him, as they, as they re- restore their passion for building up the house of the Lord and doing that work, he promises them something. He says, I am with you in this. And isn't it great to know, isn't it just beautiful and powerful to know, church, that God always provides power to do what he commands? God always provides power to do what He commands. And He never calls us to do anything that He doesn't also supply His presence for. It's, it's something that we can't ever lose sight of. It's what will help to motivate you to step out and go forward in what God, God has for you and what He's called you to do. Knowing that as you respond in obedience to Him, He empowers that obedience. And He empowers all that you seek to do. And He will be with you through it. None of us are ever alone. Not only are we on a team with each other as as fellow believers, but we are on a team with God Himself in the midst. We We have Jesus, the very Son of God, with us, directing us as our constant Emmanuel. We have the very Spirit of God drawing us toward himself and and giving us the power we need to discern right from wrong and to go this way and not that way and to, to direct us and and to lead us. We have everything we could ever possibly need. The choice is really one of whether we're going to obey or not. It's obedience or disobedience. That's what it comes down to. So that's Haggai chapter 1. That's the first of his messages to the people of Israel. And it really does all come down to priorities. It's all about priorities. The whole book was all about, is all about priorities, but especially this opening chapter. And it's with that that I have to just have us all ask the, that, that question. Where, where do our priorities lie? What really is at the top of our priority list? As believers, individually, personally, where where are our priorities? What's at the top? And we also need to ask that question as a church. Because like the people of Israel, we can say, Oh yeah, we're we're a committed church. We're a group of Christians. We're we're definitely a, a church that loves God and loves people. We can say that all day long, and we can hold up our, our church sign and name and say, yes, we're Faith Baptist Church. We've been in this community for decades and decades, and and we have a strong reputation as being a Bible-believing church and, and a church that loves the gospel and believes in the power of it. We can say all those things all day long. But until the rubber meets the road, until we put our heart on our road and consider our ways, we'll never really be able to discern where that is true and where it's not. And discerning that is absolutely crucial. We need to constantly be doing self-introspection. Self, uh, and we need to do that together as a church as well. And say, okay, where are we going as a body? What really is the priority of this body? What do our actions show? Do, do our actions and, and the feet that, that we are actually walking with, does that prove and verify what we say on our lips? Does that, does that line up with the faith we profess? Does what we do line up with what we say? And we need to invite the work of the Holy Spirit into that because if we continue on deceiving ourselves or pursuing other things and other agendas ahead of God, then like His people experienced, we will experience, that He will never bless that. He will never bless any group of people that claims to be His that don't live like they are. And he'll never bless any priority list that doesn't have him as the, as the top, at the first and the foremost. So that's the challenge for all of us, to ask those questions. To invite the Holy Spirit's very, sometimes painful but necessary, discerning work into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, into our checkbooks, into our activities, and into our life and function as a church. Amen? All right, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll be wrapped up, okay? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we see in Haggai. Father, thank you that we can, if, if we will, learn from their example. Uh, so often we make the same kind of excuses as the people did. When we, when we meet hardship or, or discouragement or disappointment, we too can be so tempted to just stop and let your work go on idle while we pursue other things. We so easily can turn our attention away from you and away from what you've clearly called us to and we can start building up our own empires and our own little kingdoms and forget about yours. Father, please forgive us when that happens. Please guard our hearts and our minds against such things where we need to repent as individuals or as a church. Please reveal that to us. Father, I ask on behalf of this church and on behalf of my brothers and sisters, as well as for myself, I ask, please, as David said in the Psalms, search us and know us, O God. See if there are any, be any offensive way in me and in us and remove those things and lead us only in the way of everlasting. Your path, your purpose, your plan. Your will. Let what you are passionate about be what invades our hearts and overwhelms our passion. And oh Father, please, by your Spirit, reveal to us all the ways that we are guilty of idolatry in any form. And lead us to be courageous enough to do something about that. To smash those idols, to, to get rid of them. And to turn our, our whole attention, our whole self... To you and you alone. I pray all this on our behalf. In Jesus name. Amen.